0: Please stand as you are able for the reading of today's New Testament lesson from the book of Acts, chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and a man lame from birth was being carried in. People would lay him daily at the gate of the temple called the Beautiful Gate, so that he could ask for alms from those entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked them for alms. Peter looked intently at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Jumping up, he stood and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him, as the one who used to sit and ask for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the portico, called Solomon's portico, utterly astonished. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
1: Well, justin thank you for reading our lesson for us this morning and greetings to all of you it is so good to be with you in worship today and thank you mason uh thank you julie and all of our praise team thank you laura for leading us and as always we're grateful to our production team who makes it possible not only for us uh, to be in person here but also to be online with you at home and it is a great privilege to be in your home today and to share the word of god uh, with each of you. I appreciate so much, Laura, your prayer. Uh, we have much to pray over in terms of our local community, uh, our personal concerns. I want to add just one name to it, and that's Joyce poost George poost 's wife, uh, who's at St. Thomas West. We're lifting up that family as well today, and our friends from West Tennessee, as Laura mentioned. Uh, we do have a couple of uh, just exciting things that happened. Yesterday, we had another wedding uh, in August. I In the clergy, we typically refer to this season as mating season, and we had another wedding yesterday with Reed Mangelsdorf and Rachel Fry, who were married here at the altar Uh, they had 10 on each side we had almost as many up front as we did in the pews and it was a beautiful beautiful service of worship and we're grateful to them and we remember them in our prayers and has anybody been watching the little league world series have any of y'all been watching that Uh, i call that baseball in its purest form And I just want to say a word of congratulations to our Nolensville team. In fact, one of the boys, uh, Cason Boer, uh, is a part of our village ministry in our church in Nolensville, and we were so proud that they made it. We were disappointed, as were they, about the loss yesterday. But my goodness, uh, the sense of pride that we have in those boys, uh, 11 and 12-year-olds, and we congratulate them, and we're grateful for them. Well, if you've been with us the last two weeks, you know that we are in the third week of this study on the book of Acts, that we're thinking together about the Acts of the Holy Spirit. This is not the Acts of the Apostles. This is the Acts of the Holy Spirit, who is the main character in the book of Acts, which is the continuation of the ministry of Jesus. When Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, he now intercedes for those of us who are who are Acts 29, that the Holy Spirit continues to write the ministry, the mission of the church through our lives, and we've been thinking about that together, and we will for the next eight weeks as well. And to date, just to bring you up, we have considered the power of the Holy Spirit empowering us to, first of all, stick together, and that was Acts 1, and secondly, the power to witness in terms of that a diverse audience can actually understand using the language of love. And today, in this particular chapter, Acts 3, I want us to think about how the the Spirit empowers us to be agents of healing and restoration. The text begins with two apostles, two of the original 11. In fact, now they have replaced Judas with Matthias, who is the 12th apostle, two of the 12 are on their way to a prayer meeting in Acts 3. It's interesting to me that after the wind and fire of Pentecost, after the Spirit ignited and birthed the movement of the church, that the disciples, who were all Jews in that day, continue their prayer life. They continue to be faithful in prayer. In fact, Acts 2.42 really gives us the fourfold discipline of the early church. What do we do? What did they do after the church was born? And they dedicated themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's what we're doing right now. To the fellowship, to the breaking of bread or sacraments, and to prayer. The fourfold discipline of the church. Now, according to Luke and Acts, according to the gospel and the sequel that Dr. Luke wrote, it's prayer that is the secret sauce of the movement. It's prayer that is the key to spiritual empowerment. In fact, in the first century, there were three times a day that devout Jews would pray, 9 a.m., 12 noon, and 3 p.m. in the afternoon. It was believed in the first century that prayers were more efficacious, more effective, if they were petitioned in the temple. And so Peter and John come mid-afternoon to pray to the holy place. There are seven gates that give entrance to the temple in Jerusalem in that day. And they approach the eastern gate that is called the beautiful gate, so-called so called because of its ornate decor that was said to be made of Corinthian bronze or copper that shone brightly in the sun. On their way to pray, as they're moving towards the eastern gate, they encounter a man who has a disability. He's crippled. He's physically impaired. In fact, Luke specifies, as a good doctor would, that this is a congenital problem. He was born this way. He's never been able to walk. In the Greco-Roman culture, where there was no welfare system, it was customary in that day for such persons to be placed near the temple entrances so that they could perhaps benefit from the charity of those worshipers who were coming or leaving the temple. We know that also from Matthew 6 that there were three cardinal virtues in Judaism, prayer, fasting, and alms. Now, this man's disability prevented him from participating in temple worship and in the faith community. Indeed, according to the holiness code, in Leviticus 21, he was prevented from being a part of temple worship. Listen to verse 17, Leviticus 21. No one who has a blemish or a defect may approach the temple to offer sacrifice to God. No one who is blind or lame, disfigured, or deformed may come near to make an offering to God. That's in the Holiness Code. Now, I don't know for sure, but I'm just guessing. I'm just spitballing at this point that this exclusion might have been more painful to this man than his physical ache. That through no fault of his own, he became an outsider. Later, we're actually told his age, He's 40 years old, the average lifespan in ancient Rome in the first century, do you know what it was? It was between 35 and 40. This guy's 40 and he's lame, it's congenital. This is Luke's way of saying this is hopeless. This man is a hopeless case. When he saw Peter and John, these two disciples, as they were entering in the Eastern Gate, He he does what anybody would have done in that shape. He asks for a handout. And this is where the whole story takes on different meaning. Listen to this, verse four. And Peter looked intently at the man, as did John. Another translation says, and Peter fixed his eyes on the man. He directed his gaze at him. In other words, He just made eye contact. He was fully present to this man. Now, I'm guessing also that this was a shock to this guy because he was accustomed to people overlooking him. He was accustomed to people discounting him, disregarding him, and perhaps seeing his cup, but not seeing his personhood. Susan Young has written a book called The Art of Body Language. I have a quote for you that I want you to remember. She says in the book, meaningful eye contact has the power to transcend time and space, to connect us with others, and can be one of the most gracious and important ways to demonstrate attention and respect. That's why sometimes, and I'll be honest with you, it's easier to proclaim the word when I can see your face, when I can see your eyes. Preferably, your eyes are open at this point in the service, but it's much easier. When our son went to Brazil, our son is a, a, an associate pastor at Noon and First Methodist South uh, of Atlanta. When our son went to Brazil a few years ago, he was a part of a mission team that went to Recife one of the, the larger cities in Brazil. And he said, Dad, our group was, was trained to reach out to prostitutes in the city at night. And as we were trained, they taught us that when we talked to these women, that we were, we were to look straight into their eyes to not overlook them, to look around them, but to make eye contact with them. In fact, he said that they even trained us that if you have the privilege to pray with them, do not close your eyes, but look into their eyes and pray through them, with them, eye contact. And then he said something really interesting. He said, Dad, it's a very vulnerable thing to pray with your eyes open And he said, I'll never forget it. It's one of the reasons he's in the ministry. When I looked into their eyes, he said, I didn't see a prostitute. I saw a person. I saw a soul. I saw a child of God. And it was life-changing, he said, on both sides of the glance. Peter looked intently. I hope before you go home today, either after Sunday school or after this worship service, that you will look around at those on either side of you and that you will not look past them or overlook them for a busy schedule, but that you will make eye contact with brothers and sisters and you will know the presence of Christ by so doing. There there is life change on both sides of that glance. When Peter looked at this man... He didn't see a drain on the system. He didn't see a burden. He didn't see an inconvenience to his busy ministry schedule. He saw a man, and he fixed his eyes on him. And I tell you, that is the beginning of healing. That's the beginning. Have you ever noticed how oftentimes in the four Gospels that are in our New Testament that you see this recurring phrase? When Jesus saw the crowd, he had compassion on them. When Jesus saw the man, when Jesus saw the woman hemorrhaging, when Jesus saw the child, he had compassion. It's interesting to me that the Greek word for seeing, it's more than physical eyesight, it's more than 2020. It means being aware. It means when you look around, you observe. It means you perceive spiritually. It means that you consider. When you see, there is compassion. Some of you have seen that movie, Lady Bird, yes? about the mother and daughter, the conflict, but also the love that they have. There's a classic line in that movie, Lady Bird, and I think it's spoken by a nun who says to the teenager these words, loving and paying attention is the same thing. Amen? I'm sorry? <laughs> loving and paying attention is the same thing. It was Simone Vale prayer warrior who said prayer is simply being attentive. I think you could say the opposite. Prayerlessness is just being inattentive. This troubled soul, this man who had a congenital paralysis, looks up at Peter and John expecting a handout, and Peter says... I love this. This is King James Version. Silver and gold have I none. Let me translate into Williamson County. I'm a little short on cash today, but I'll give you what I have. And looking intently at the man, he said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And he took him by the right hand And raised him up. That's resurrection language. You recognize that? He took it. Why not the left hand? He took him by the right hand. That's authority. And he raised him up. And suddenly his feet and ankles and knees and thighs became strong. And he just danced his way into the temple. And the outsider became an insider. Now, as you can imagine, this caused quite a stir, quite a hubbub in the temple. Can you imagine that happening in the middle of worship? We'd have had to call security to get them to address the situation because we're interrupting the program in the bulletin. There was quite a stir. And a crowd gathered around. They were all amazed and astonished. And Peter, when he saw the crowd, whenever a pastor sees a crowd, you know he's either gonna preach or take up an offering, right? Right? And so when Peter sees the crowd, he sees it as an opportunity to preach. And preach he does. I mentioned last week there are 19 different sermons in the book of Acts. One-third of this book, sermons in the apostolic faith. In fact, Peter preached eight, nine preached, uh, Paul preached nine, and one apiece to Stephen and James. One-third sermons. And Peter stood up and took it as an opportunity to preach. He had just done so at Pentecost, of course, You Israelites, he says, why are you so amazed by what you've seen? Why do you stare at us as though we, by our own power and piety, have caused this man to walk? It was not us. It was Jesus. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus. He's preaching now. You handed him over to be crucified. You disowned him to Pilate. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and it is by faith in his name that this man has a leg to stand on now. Now, That's interesting to me. And it's amazing that God actually uses our hands, but it's his name that brings the power. It's not you. It's not our piety. It's not our goodness. It's not our morality. He uses our hands, but the power is supplied by his spirit, by his name. There is power In the name. We're going to sing this at 1045. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. There is a name I love to hear. I love to sing its worth. It sounds like music in my ears. Sweetest name on earth. The apostolic message. The preaching of the church is necessarily unapologetically Christocentric. It is Christ-centered. And if Christ isn't the crux of our proclamation, we might as well shut down the church. By the way, if you didn't know it, it's one of the core values of this church that we are necessarily a Christ-centered people. That is the source of who we are. That is the source of our identity, and it's the source of our strength. And whenever I read this story in Acts 3, I'm always reminded of Thomas Aquinas. Aquinas, we have a college named after him here in Nashville. Aquinas was a 12th century saint of the church who once called on Pope Innocent II as the pope was counting out large sums of money in the Vatican treasury. The pope turned to Thomas and said, and I quote, "'You see, Sir Thomas,' the church can no longer say silver and gold have I none to which Thomas said that's true Holy Father but neither can she say rise up and walk (laughs) which was his way of saying the measure of the faithfulness of the church is not necessarily in the offering it's in the faith of the people it's in our trust in God I've said it before, and I'll say it again. It is not a new denomination that the 21st century needs. It is a new movement of the Holy Spirit. And that starts with prayer on my knees and leads to witness with my tongue, which leads to healing by the power of his name even in our hands. I discovered the other day. I did not know this, but the Greek in the Greek language. Did you know that the word healing and salvation are exactly the same? The word is So, It means healed, saved, rescued, delivered, preserved, made whole. There is power. There is sotso in the name. Now, I wish we could stop there, and I bet you do too, checking the eyes in the room. But we can't stop just yet because there's one other thing to note in this text. I want you to note that not everybody, according to Acts 3 and 4, was thrilled by what happened in the temple that day. There were many who were amazed. In fact, Luke, who's always counting attendance, says there were 5,000 who were added on that day because of this miracle and the sermon that Peter preached. But not everybody was so excited by this man's healing, nor by Peter's preaching. The religious authorities were not happy. And in fact, Acts 4 2 says the chief priests and the Sanhedrin were annoyed by their teaching. They were vexed, they were aggravated, particularly because of the bit about resurrection. I don't know if you know it or not, but the Pharisees the Pharisees believed in resurrection, but the Sadducees did not. And the way I remember is that's why they're so sad, you see. Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. Now, I know that's a shocker to know that not all religious people in that day agreed theologically. That's a real shocker, isn't it? Never happens today, but it did back then. During my study break in July, I was not only immersing Uh, Myself in the book of Acts, but I was also doing a deep dive into the epistles of Paul. I was studying the writing of Paul to these churches that he had established across the Roman Empire, and I noticed that these letters are essentially apostolic troubleshooting to churches that had a good start but then had conflict in their first and second generation. Rome. Was theologically confused. Corinth was prideful and uppity. Colossae was Gnostic and ethereal. Galatia was too legalistic. Philippi had a rippet between two teachers that didn't see eye to eye. Ephesus was just spiritually immature. And Paul wrote these letters to help the church stay centered and focused on Christ and the mission. Don't you wish you could read some of the letters that were written to Paul? Before he responded, can you imagine some of that mail? They probably look like some that I've gotten from a few of you over the last year. But Paul never gave up on the church. And neither did Jesus. In fact, for those of us, and I include myself in this, who sometimes get over-anxious and stressed about the state of the church... Let me remind you of something that Jesus said. Upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. You can't stop it. The world can't hinder it. The religious authorities, it's hard to believe, tried to stop it. In fact, they arrested Peter and John because they were upsetting the status quo. They were not sticking to the temple curriculum. The authorities tried to put a lid on it. In fact, they beat them up. They persecuted them. They threatened them. And they told them, get this, you are to never speak the name of Jesus again. This is what authoritarians do. They try to muzzle information. They try to suppress the press. They try to control the media. They ban the books. They silence the witness. But all these threats are futile. Listen to Peter's response in Acts four nineteen. Whether it is right in God's sight to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. But as for us, we can't help but speak of what we have heard and seen. The apostles couldn't help it, and the Sanhedrin couldn't stop it. So they beat them, and they threatened them, and they persecuted them, and they warned them, and then they released them. I want you to see this in conclusion what happened. When they release Peter and John, and they did it because of the crowd, because of the negative press they would have gotten, what do Peter and John do? They go back to their friends, they go back to their church, house church, they go back to the fellowship, and they tell the folks what had happened to them. And this is my version. And then they began to pray. They had another prayer meeting. Lord, get us out of this mess. Lord, this is too hard. Lord, if you don't make it easier on us, we're checking out on you. Lord, it's too stressful. We're not sure your spirit is strong enough to resist the struggle. Oh, wrong Bible, sorry. That's the Revised Chapel Version. Here's the NRSV. They prayed to God, now, O Lord, look upon their threats and empower your servants to speak your word with boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Yeah, you know, it's a miracle to me. They didn't say, Lord, keep us safe. Lord, free us from hardship and adversity. They said, Lord, look upon their threats and make us bold. And he did. And the place where they were praying Was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit as they continued to speak the word with courage. What a prayer meeting. Last word. I shared at our prayer meeting that we had last Wednesday night, we prayed together, guided prayer, and then people went out into the building into all parts of the building, wherever they felt led, and laid their hands on doors and altars and lecterns and just prayed for this body that we would be bold in our witness. I told them this story. When I was growing up, uh, my grandfather on my mother's side was a Texaco mechanic. I remember his hands. He could never get his hands clean. Uh, They were kind of broken and blistered and calloused and... And looked like they had motor oil in the fingernails. And he was a master mechanic. And he ran the Texaco station in Southwest Virginia in a tiny little town called Bluefield, Virginia, which was a coal mining town. He had three girls. My mother was the oldest. All three were valedictorians of their high school class and all three married Methodist ministers. You believe that? One of them twice, but that's another sermon. (laughs) When I was a boy, all I wanted to do was work at his, what we call filling station. We used to call it the filling station. You remember that? Where they'd come out, it wasn't self-service. They'd come out and you want, what do you want? And you $10 worth and they'd pump you gas. That's what I wanted to do when I was a boy. That's all I wanted to do. That was my dream. I want to work for my grandfather. I want to work at a filling station. But when I was 13, he died prematurely and I kind of lost my dream. But, but I, I can still remember how when we were about to leave and come home to Nashville, it was a long drive, It's about eight hours from Bluefield to Nashville, long time for a little boy. We'd always go by his station and he'd come out personally and he'd fill us up with gas and then he'd give us a little brown bag full of what we used to call nabs. Y'all ever heard of nabs? Short for Nabisco, just you know, cheese crackers and peanut butter crackers and candy bars and Cokes. And, and he knew that he'd fill us up with food and gas and we wouldn't have to stop and we'd make it safely all the way home. And then he'd just sit there and watch us until we disappeared from sight. He gave us enough to get all the way home. You know, I've thought about that sense that, that maybe, maybe my dream, maybe it has come true in certain ways. Because I think of the church as a filling station. People come here every Sunday. They turn in the lot and and the gauges in their life is on empty. It's on E. You got a flat tire coming in. I see you when you come in. You got the world on your shoulders. Empty. And then something happens. Where two or more gathered in my name He's there. He's here. He's with us. And all of a sudden, that gauge begins to move until the point when you're able to go home. You've got a full tank. You're ready for ministry. Your hands are ready to touch. Your eyes are ready to see. And your heart is ready to feel. And something happens At this filling station (laughs) where the Spirit is still writing Acts 29. Isn't it wonderful to know that Jesus can use your hands and your heart? He can, but don't ever be misled. He's the power, He's the gas, He's the fuel, He's the strength. And according to Dr. Luke in the book of Acts, his spirit will never run dry. May it be so. In Jesus' name.